0: pray together. Father, meet us where we are. Uh, You know exactly what our hearts need to hear this morning, Lord. Uh, So we pray that you would work uh, through your word uh, to speak directly to our hearts and our lives, that we may know you better and that we may love you more. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've been uh, watching the news recently, but internationally, one of the biggest things that's going on is is this uh, political upheaval Uh, that's happening in the country of Ukraine. And uh, it's just gotten bloody within the past couple of weeks, but it's actually been something that's been going on for the past uh, three to four months. And it's essentially a a group or a movement of people that feel uh, oppressed by uh, the government. So what they've chosen to do is come out in mass protest and uh, protest the government and try to enact change. And unfortunately, there's been lots of casualties. Around 130 people uh, have died in the process of this protesting uh, that's been going on in the country of uh, Ukraine. But at the heart of of their anger, at the heart of the their their uh, frustration, the fuel for this movement is that they want a regime change. They view the the political powers as oppressing them, and they want a regime change. They want new rule and new government over them. Well, it made me think about that a little bit when we think about this book of Acts that we've been looking at. Because in the book of Acts, a a powerful community of believers in Jesus Christ really took the streets to announce a new rule. They took the streets to announce a new allegiance and a new kingdom. Now, their movement wasn't a violent one. They were simply armed with the best news ever. They were armed with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was their ammunition, the fact that Jesus has come to break the oppression. He's come to break the tyranny of sin that exists in our lives. But the truth is it cost many of them their lives. Almost every one of the apostles, almost every one of these first believers that we read, at, read about in the first couple of chapters of Acts... ...gave their lives, were martyred for this very thing... ...because they had discovered something that was so precious to them that they were, given, they were willing to die for it. They were willing to give, that was most precious to them, their lives. And their lives became the foundation of this thing that we call the church. This movement of the gospel that exists in this world... And the great thing about the book of Acts is it doesn't end uh, neat and tidy. We've seen that. But it ends very abruptly. And the point of that is to invite us to be a part of it. To read what God did in this first century as he changed the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. As it went from city to city and changed cultures and lives in in its wake. But it's also an invitation. An invitation for you and I to be a part of this gospel movement, not just in our lives, but also in our city and in our world. But before we come to the Lord's table today, what I'd like to do is look at just a few things from our passage, a few components that really fueled this movement of Jesus Christ in the first century. Some things that, that just were characteristics or practices that this first group of believers engaged in that made their testimony, that made their witness, that made their story and lives so powerful that it changed the first century world. And the first thing I'd like us to see about this community of faith, this community of believers, was that they were patient and they were willing to trust God with the process. You know, sometimes we look at at these first century believers and we think they've got it all figured out. They seem to know exactly what to do in the right time and they seem to exactly know what the answers were. But think about them for just a moment. Think about what they were experiencing. Think about everything that had just transpired. Here they'd given three years plus of their lives to following Jesus Christ. And then uh, they witnessed Jesus Christ's miracles, His teaching, and then they witnessed His betrayal and His arrest and His execution. And eventually, three days later, they witness his, his resurrection. And for 40 days, the Scriptures tell us that, that He walked among them and taught them and, and dispelled all doubts and dispelled all skepticism whatsoever. And then He ascended back into heaven and He was gone. He'd promised that He was going to send a helper, but they had no idea what that helper was going to look like or what He was going to do. And Luke also makes mention of Judas. Now when we think of Judas and the story of Judas that we've probably heard about at some point as we've read the scriptures, we think in very black and white terms. Judas was the villain. Judas was the bad guy. But it was very different for those first century believers. They had walked with Judas for three years. They considered him a brother. They considered him a friend. They could hardly believe their eyes when they realized that Judas was the one that betrayed Jesus with the kiss. So their friend, their brother, had now become not only Christ's betrayer, but their betrayer too. And their emotions and their feelings at this moment must have been raw. They must have been difficult. They must have wondered, what are we going to do moving forward now that our friend has betrayed us and Christ has left us? Well, they did what they thought to do, and they thought, we have to figure out a way to replace this, this, this man, Judas. We have to figure out a way that we can replace his leadership. So they gathered together, and they start to think about, how could we replace Judas? How could we replace his leadership? And they come up with two guys, uh, Joseph, who was also called Justice, and Matthias, and both of these guys seem to be equally qualified to, to fill Judas's uh, shoes as an apostle. So they don't know exactly what to do. Both of them are qualified. So they decide to do the thing that just comes to mind. They decide to cast lots, which is really an ancient way of um, uh, flipping a coin toss. There's no Joe Namath in a fur coat doing this coin toss, but these are the apostles trying to figure out what they're supposed to do. So they, they flip a coin toss, and they, the, 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 the toss lands to Matthias, and he fills Judas's shoes. Now, you and I almost never, ever, ever leave big life decisions up to casting lots or a coin toss. Maybe life would be easier if we did it that way. Contrary to popular opinion, it's not how they pick pastors now. We don't just sit in a room and wonder who's going to be the pastor when you flip a coin, right? Nor is it how we try to make big decisions in church or anything like that. It's not how you make decisions about life. You're not wondering who to date and flipping a coin and seeing what the coin tells you. You're not trying to make a decision about school and flipping a coin as to what to do. You're not trying to make decisions about jobs by flipping a coin and all that. Nor does the first century church ever use this method to make a decision after this. So what are these guys doing? Why are, they, why are they doing this? Why have they done this? Well, if you read the Greek very carefully, uh, which I don't, but this is what commentators tell me, if you read the Greek very carefully, you'll discover that there's some language that Luke is using in the original language to help us understand that these apostles were just trying to figure things out on the fly. It's as if they were kind of groping in the dark, wondering what we're supposed to do next, wondering what direction should we, should we move in. They're sitting there asking, why did, why did all this have to happen? Why did Jesus have to die? Why did he leave us? They're wondering why Judas had to betray them. They're wondering how they're going to replace him. They have no script on how to do church. There's no book of church order. There's nothing showing them what they should do. And they're just trying to figure things out like they're groping around in the dark. Jesus had just given them the biggest job ever. Communicate the gospel to the ends of the earth. And they're wondering, how is this possible? How are we going to do this? And they were in process, trying to figure things out like they're groping around in the dark. But what you do get the sense of even though they didn't have answers, they didn't have a whole lot of certainty, they were content to trust God and be patient in the process. And so often God asks us to do the very same thing. We had, uh, we had uh, lunch with some friends recently and we started swapping stories about uh, funny vacation things that had happened to us. And uh, I told the story of uh, the, my, my wife and Mai's honeymoon, which is um, when we went to Bermuda. We went on a cruise to Bermuda, and uh, we decided one day to do one of those cruise excursions. If you've ever been on a cruise, they try to upsell you and get, get you involved in all these adventures. So the adventure we chose to go on was kayaking. We thought it'd be a great fun. So we, it comes to the day where we're going to go kayaking, and the instructor gets couples, that are all on their honeymoon, and puts them in these little kayaks and gives them instructions. Well, he said the worst possible thing he could have said to me at that point. He says, you're going to start here, and you're going to finish over there. Okay? And in my mind, I said, how can I get to point from A to B as fast as possible? Because it's a race. And we have to beat all these other, you know, paying customers on their honeymoons and everything. So immediately I began to strategize about how I can get from point A to B faster than everyone else and, and win the race. And in the process, all these beautiful things are surrounding me. But all I can care about is getting from point A to point B. And I ignore the, the, the beautiful tropical settings that are all around me. I think that's true about my life, and maybe it's true about your life, too, is that sometimes we think in terms of A, how we can get from point A to B as quickly as possible. We want something so badly, we desire something so intensely that all we can think of is how we can get to that place, how we can arrive at that thing or that place that we most want. And we often get very upset with God because the thing that we want so badly isn't quite happening as fast as we want it to, or it's not happening in the way we want it to happen. When only God wants us to do often is to trust Him And to be patient with the process. You know, I think often we feel like the disciples do about life. We feel sometimes that we're just groping around in the dark. We're struggling with the process, wondering what might be the next step for us to take in life. But we have to remember that we are in the middle of that process, not by accident. You see, we believe in a sovereign God, and what that means is that God controls every element of our lives. Everything that happens to us is not by accident. It is part of God's plan. It is part of his process, and it's been part of that from the very beginning. But often he simply calls us to not embrace the answers or even sometimes search for the answers, but to trust him and to patiently walk through the dark places, trusting that he is leading us all along the way. And what you see in these first century believers is they had a remarkable trust in God and a remarkable patience with the process. But what you also see is that they were a community that was very centered on this thing called prayer. If you've been with us the past couple of weeks, if we look through Acts, we've, we've seen that that they've been centered on this powerful sense of mission, this thing that they were called to do. But really the fuel or the engine of that mission was their prayers, It says in verse 14 about the believers, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. And it makes me wonder that in those times of life where things seem so dark and we feel like we're just groping around for answers, that God may be saying to us, devote yourselves to prayer, just as those first century believers did. You know, what's interesting is prayer has has in some ways taken a hit in our culture. Uh, One one of the things I find is that everybody almost universally thinks prayer is valuable. I've told many of you that I teach a a course here at the university called uh, the Contemporary Spirituality. And one of the things that we talk about is the nature of prayer. And in the course we view all sorts of faith traditions and, and all sorts of faith backgrounds. And almost every faith tradition says that prayer is an extremely valuable thing. But so few of us actually devote ourselves to it. One writer named Paul Miller said this. He said, American culture is probably the hardest place in the world to learn to pray. We are so busy that when we slow down to pray, we find it uncomfortable. We prize accomplishments and production. But prayer is nothing but talking to God. It feels useless as if we are wasting time and every bone in our body screams, get to work. You see, we tend to be a, a culture that wants to accomplish things and to get in and work. And, and it seems so antithetical to this idea of prayer, where we have to just settle ourselves, to devote ourselves to it, and trust and have patience in God's plan. But I think the biggest issue with our prayer life is not so much our busyness or our, or our work ethic. I think it more has to do with our lack of faith. Listen to this passage that Jesus said in Matthew 7. Jesus said this himself, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven Give good gifts to those who ask him. See, I think, is, I think the reason we don't pray is because we unconsciously believe that it's not really worth it. And this, I think, is what Jesus' point was. You know, the truth is, my kids, uh, my kids are like any other kids, right? They, they have learned the knack of asking something with a particular tenacity, Right? They can, they can pester me like anybody else for something that they want desperately. It can, the requests can come hourly, sometimes every 10 minutes, sometimes every minute. They're just tenacious about asking what they want. Well, why are they so tenacious? I think they're tenacious because of two reasons. One, they know that I love them desperately. And two, they know that I'm usually able to do the thing that they are asking me to do. So because they know they love me, but they know I love them, and because they know I'm able, they tenaciously ask. This is what Jesus's point is. He loves us more desperately than we can even ask or imagine, and he is able to accomplish these things that we so desperately want. And part of being devoted in faith is being devoted by being devoted to prayer, is being devoted to this thing called faith that believes, one, that God loves us desperately, and two, that he is actually able to do the things that we most deeply desire. See, our issue has less to do with our busyness, and it has more to do with our faith, that we believe that he loves us and that he's able to do the things that we want. Throughout Acts, we see, and throughout this record, in uh, these first century believers, that they constantly devoted themselves to prayer. Luke, Luke makes mention of it so often, it almost comes redundant. They, they pray constantly, they devote themselves constantly, and it was through these prayers, these prayers of faith, that God threw, grew this church in miraculous and powerful ways. And if you look throughout church history, you'll see that almost every powerful movement of the gospel in history has gone hand in hand with people that were devoted to prayer. So you see that they were a people who were trusting. You see people who they, they were patient with God. You see them uh, devoted to prayer, but you also see them unified in this powerful sense of mission. I've used this illustration before, but one of my favorite miniseries ever is the miniseries called Band of Brothers. Uh, it's a miniseries that follows uh, a certain company throughout World War II as they fought uh, in Europe on multiple fronts. And you get quite attached to these guys as you go through episode after episode, following them and learning their stories. But what you discover is there's all sorts of infighting among these these soldiers. They fight with one another, they argue with one another, they, they scrap here and there, and they have a hard time really understanding what this mission is that they're called to. They don't, they don't understand history backwards like we can. They were in the moment, and they weren't really understanding why they were fighting at all these battlefronts in Europe. And that is until one very powerful episode, and the episode was called Why We Fight. And in that episode, they're traveling through the countryside, and they stumble upon a concentration camp. And they discover what the Nazis were doing to the Jews all throughout World War, World War II. They see the atrocities. They see the people that have suffered. They see the mass graves. And all of a sudden, they realize why they were fighting. Before, they had a hard time understanding what their mission was. But then, once they saw what their mission was, it changed everything. And all of a sudden, all those arguments among them started to dissipate. All that infighting, all that sliding back and forth to one another started to disappear. Why? Because they had discovered what their true mission really and truly is. See, one of the things our passage tells us is that there was a powerful sense of unity among these first century believers. It says, with one accord, they were devoting themselves not just to prayer, but to the work of the gospel. Now think of some of these characters. One of the the apostles was a guy named Simon. Simon was a zealot, and zealots hated the Romans. They wanted to overthrow the Romans. They were a militant group that wanted to destroy them. And then you have, sitting right next to him, Matthew, a former tax tax collector, one who was in cahoots with the Roman government. And yet these two guys that in any other circumstance would absolutely hate each other were brothers. Why? Because they had been unified through the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, I'd like to tell you that um, the church, by and large, is unified around this mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But so often we're not. So often we forget this mission that God has called us to, and we become reduced to squabbles and infighting and all that sort of stuff. But the truth is, God has called us to a mission, a powerful mission, that if we really grasp it, if we really embrace it the way we are designed to do, then so often the things that we get so upset about in the church, we won't get so upset about anymore. Because we realize that the mission is so important and so powerful that sometimes those petty squabbles seem to fall away. Luke makes mention that, that women were gathered with him. He makes mention that Jesus' brothers were gathered with him. Well, the, both of those are significant. Women weren't treated very well in the ancient society. They were in some ways at a lower tier of society. But what Luke wants to see is what society's picture of women is, it doesn't matter anymore because of the mission. He mentions Jesus' brothers. These were brothers, his half-brothers that Mary and Joseph had after him brothers that rejected him, that had nothing but vitriol and anger against Jesus, their older half-brother, when he mentioned that he was the Messiah. But all that has dispelled. All that's gone now, because they've been given a mission. And God's given this church, the church that, he, that is here now, this powerful sense of mission for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we are characterized by the unity that comes from that mission we can move out to begin to change the world for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you see in this community that they had an incredible sense of trust in God's plan, an incredible patience with the process. They devoted themselves to prayer. They were characterized by a great sense of unity. You know, we look at them and we're impressed. But we would be remiss to think that they are the heroes of the story because they're not. Because all the good that came from them only came because of their union with Jesus Christ Himself. Because they had been engrafted, they had been forgiven and chosen and used powerfully by Him. And because of that, they had incredible power in that first century. Because what was true of His believers was also true of Jesus Himself. Because what we see in the gospel story is that Jesus Himself came to this earth on mission. He demonstrated patience and trust as he was here on mission to accomplish our redemption. From the very moment in which man and women fell in the garden, God began to launch a rescue mission. A rescue mission that was ready and able to save those that had fallen. And what you see in Jesus was a patience and a trust in the Father in the process. You also see in Jesus that he was faithful in prayer to the Father. You see that throughout Jesus' life, he was constantly stealing away in order, in order to commune with the Father. And quite possibly, his most powerful prayer that he ever uttered was on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. See, Jesus was devoted to prayer, and ultimately, he was, he was unified in this mission to save you and I, from the tyranny of sin. Christ himself on mission is the hero of the story. He went to the greatest lengths possible in order to secure a relationship with him. And the more united we are with this good news of the gospel, the more united we are with Christ himself, the more we will find our lives are taken up and captured by this mission that he has called us to, because we realize that he went on mission for you and for me. Have you discovered that in your life? Have you realized that Jesus Christ came to make right all the things that had gone wrong in this world, and that he comes to make right the brokenness that exists in your own heart? See, when you embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, you embrace not just the forgiveness of your sins, not just the justification and righteousness that comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ, but you embrace a mission that will unite your life. Do you know this mission? Do you know this Christ? And if not, give yourselves to him anew and afresh here this morning that you might experience mission accomplished in your life because of Christ. And you might be invited to something that will unite your entire lives. That is the mission of the gospel.